Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening. And enjoy the show. The darkness has found you. Welcome to Season 5, Episode 18. I'm your host, Jason Hill, and I am a maggot who has beautiful dreams of becoming a fly, but always wakes up a maggot. Hi. Isn't it just a glorious January? So many different shades of... gray. Tonight's story comes from Benjamin Curl and will not alleviate your seasonal affective disorder. It's pretty damn good, though. So that's something. Shall we? 
This is the standard edition of this program. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy ad-free versions of this and all our other episodes, as well as hundreds of tales from our audio archives dating back to 2012, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today to get instant access from our friends at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Thank you for your support. And now, allow me to escort you to a place where the sun dies, when nightmares come to life. Welcome, listener, to the Horror Hill. You haven't found the darkness. The darkness has found you. And now, without further ado, from author Benjamin Curl, I give you The Gathering of Drowned Voices. On March the 3rd, 1984, Detective Yalmerson of the Houghton Police Department acquired a stack of papers, freshly typed, from a deserted hotel room on the second floor of the Best Western overlooking the canal. The 32-year-old man, James H. Kowalczyk, had rented the room the preceding three nights. According to staff, Kowalczyk did not leave his room after arrival, at least not to their knowledge, until sometime after 11 p.m. on the night of March the 2nd. He was a quiet guest. Occasionally, they heard him talking to someone, presumably on the telephone. Management alerted the police when a housekeeper found his abandoned belongings. In addition to the papers, he had left behind his suitcase, wallet, car keys, typewriter, coat, an audio cassette player, and five cassettes. To date, no one has found any sign of what happened to Kowalczyk. He led a solitary life unremarkable in any way, except for the manuscript he left behind. I obtained the original papers in early 1998 through an anonymous source. Witness, James H. Kowalczyk, to whom it concerns. No instrument can match the seduction of the human voice. The rhythms, the cadences, the pitches, the sliding and trembling vowels followed by a click or a little patter of the tongue on the roof of the mouth. Words are incidental. Afterthoughts. Nothing can haunt you or fool you like the intonations of a voice. I shouldn't have played the cassettes. To think how long those frozen syllables lingered around the spools, wound up in fury and desperation. How did they not wear thin? The voices of Lottie and the lady became clearer every time I listened. It was like the tape got stronger the more it spun. I could have gotten a job somewhere far away, maybe San Francisco. Could have ditched the Midwest. I was not untalented. I could have made a life. But these two towns, Houghton and Hancock, 
crawling up the steep hills on either side of the canal, would not relinquish their grip. The weathered brick smelter and its narrow smokestacks loomed along the horizons of my daydreams. Voices from the deep woods, dirt-logging roads, and dripping mines of the Kiwanaw Peninsula had called, reaching me through the cassettes, and I could not tune them out. Well, no help to think that way. From this window, where I watched the snow whirl down into the black canal, I shudder with the red lights blinking in alternation from the opposing towers of the lift bridge. Two mute watchers, flashing dull signals. Then I glimpse my haggard reflection, half realized in the window, a pale face from another dimension, full of regret for what could have been. But I have to keep going until I find her. I chose this path. I lived here for a couple of years. Well, in Hancock, on the other side of the canal, the gateway to the Kowenal Peninsula. In all the United States, Hancock houses the largest proportion of Finnish Americans, with their long names full of vowels and double consonants, almost always ending in nen or la. Some still call the place Kuparisari, meaning Copper Island, a land of dense woods, rocky outcroppings, desolate beaches, harsh winters, sparse inhabitants, and old brick foundations besieged by moss and ivy. The Kewanal Peninsula pokes into frigid Lake Superior like a displaced mass of human memory. Once you cross the lift bridge from Houghton to Hancock, You've entered an island, adrift on the sea of time, tenuously tied to a neglected corner of the American mainland. It was 1977. Until then, I'd spent my entire life in Illinois, born and raised in Fox Lake, completing my undergraduate and master's at DePaul. I was studying comparative religions at Suomi College while working part-time as a clerk at a law firm. They always gave me the shittiest work. I was a PhD candidate for Christ's sake and they had me collating documents. I couldn't figure out the settings on the new copier. Peter's done. Someone needs to clean out his office. Mr. Magnuson snapped beside the paper cutter where I stood clutching a handful of oversized paper clips. Peter Lottie has been there for 30 years. He had sued every auto insurer in the Keweenaw. He'd won quite a few cases, some real big ones, representing employees and retirees of the Quincy Mine, the Red Jacket Mine, the Franklin Mine, the Cliff Mine. All of them now closed. The firm used to joke that he had shut them all down, that they went broke paying out his clients, they said. It should come as no surprise that he made plenty of enemies, and tons of admirers, too. But he'd cracked. In 1970, something had crawled up between his ribcage and cut out the bottom of his heart. His decline was steady, as if an anchor had tied to his collarbone, pulling his narrow chest and bony shoulders down toward hell. 
His eyes burned holes into the carpet, then flitted up past your head as he spoke, as if afraid his words would make a ceiling tile drop. I only saw his final two and a half years. A sinking ghost, the weight hung heavy, his neck strained to keep his eyes off the floor. At first, I thought he avoided eye contact out of arrogance, as if I were too lowly to acknowledge. After a couple of months, I started to suspect something else. He knew he was a shadow. He knew how awful he was to behold. And he was afraid of infecting anyone else with his wraith-like wasting. After those first couple of months, I hardly saw him again. He would disappear into his office behind the frosted glass panel of his closed door. A soft light would glow into the night. I would hear little clicks and muted voices. He'd still be there when I left at 5pm. The next morning, it would look like he hadn't slept at all. In fact, at least three times he wore the same clothing as the night before. But he wasn't working any cases. Not that any of us knew of. Magnuson and the others put up with him because of his legacy. They handed him documents to review even though they'd already reviewed them. At times, they already had filed a brief before giving it to him. He didn't notice, and he offered no comments. They kept paying his senior partner's share, even though he'd contributed nothing. It was just too sad for everyone. His last big case, the wrongful death lawsuit against the Quincy Mining Company, had fizzled out to nothing. His client, thoroughly discredited before trial, fled to Canada. He said there aren't many files that need to be preserved, Mr. Magnuson said, peering over his bifocals sitting in a leather swivel chair. There may be a few for storage. Check the dates. But most, if not all, can be shredded. They had seen the interior of Lottie's office a handful of times over the past year, Partial glimpses as the hunched man shambled in and out. The high-ceilinged room with shelves of legal tomes sagging along the walls. Black and pale green filing cabinets. Tall antique armchairs. I dreaded the prospect of sifting through this musty mess he'd left behind. He particularly mentioned materials from the Kukula case, Magnuson droned. Interview cassettes. Destroy them. My job description did not include cleaning, but I had learned not to ask questions of Mr. Magnuson, so I accepted my assignment without inquiry or complaint. When he handed me a thick bronze key, his eyes dropped back to the brief in his hands. He swiveled away from me. I left. It felt like walking into a sacred and forsaken past. The wood-paneled room was a compartment of Lottie's mind preserved against the vicious gravity that had assaulted his body. Newspaper clippings from seven years ago, and older, sat beneath paperweights. Why wasn't Lottie cleaning out the office himself? Wouldn't he know the documents better than anyone? These were questions I should have asked Mr. Magnuson, but I didn't. The quiet office seemed like a convenient escape. I thought I could turn it into a two-day project at least. Sifting through the large filing cabinets was tedious, but did not take as long as I'd expected. 
By 4.15, I was nearly done, having neatly arranged and labeled a stack of banker's boxes by the door. That's when I turned to the narrow green cabinet nestled against Lottie's desk. I had to rummage around in his rollout drawer to find the key, buried among a thousand unused pencils. The top drawer of the cabinet was empty. The bottom drawer was where I found them. Those damned, drowned voices that have never stopped spinning through the background of my uneventful life. A precise hand had written Kukula v. Quincy Smelter in black marker on each of the cassette cases. There were five subtitles. Interview of Catherine Kukula. Interview of Benjamin Faircrown. Interview of Foreman Sapanen. Interview of Catherine Kukula Part 2. And Interview of... Blank. Someone had scribbled out the name of the last interviewee. Had I known what I know now, I would have built a bonfire that night and watched until every inch of tape had melted. Of course, even had I tried, I bet the voices would have slipped out through the flames, curling up inside the smoke, twisting green fumes into my nostrils, infiltrating my mind. You cannot kill voices like those. In any case, it's too late to reflect. The snow keeps folding into the black canal's surface like minuscule white feathers dissolving into a highway of obsidian. Soon, I will walk the lift bridge to what awaits me on the other side. I cannot stop now what I have returned. Most of the partners had left the office. I pushed the first cassette into the player, shoved the panel shut, and clicked the button. Sitting in Lottie's red, high-backed armchair, I listened with the volume low. After some static, I heard voices. For the sake of brevity, I will omit the tedious, lawyerly questions and leave only what is necessary for context. I must note that Lottie's voice sounded different from when I had heard him in real life. There was a crispness, a lilt, as if every time he spoke he expected his words to lead to an answer, or at least a course of action. In short, he sounded confident that a truth obtainable by language existed. I listened close. Interview of Catherine Kukula, March the 17th, 1970. 8 o'clock a.m. The sound of shuffling paper. Do you, Mrs. Kukula, agree to this interview being recorded for my own investigative purposes? I do. I do not betray the confidences of my clients. Anything you say will not be shared unless you agree. Thank you. Sound of shuffling paper. How long were you and your husband married? A year. Well, it would have been a year, on the 15th of this month. I'm sorry. And have you two always lived in Hancock? No, not always. I was born in Copper Harbor. Tom was from Amik. We met in Houghton a year and a half ago. Then, we moved across the canal into Hancock. 
right onto Quincy Street when Tom got his promotion. Promotion at the Quincy Smelter, correct? Correct. And is it still your belief that the operations of the Quincy Smelter are responsible for the death of your husband? I have no doubt. And how did you come to this belief? Because one of them confessed to me. What? <laughs> Why didn't you share this before? Because I didn't want to trouble you. Trouble me? We could easily get such an admission into trial, depending on the nature of what was said. Did they put it in writing? No. One of them met with me. When? A week ago? A week after Tom died? How did this meeting come about? I went to Tom's office. A pause. It seems the tape skipped several seconds, but misses no dialogue. Go on. I found myself walking through the corridors of the office building. Tom had left his key at home. I was looking for his coat. I thought maybe he had left it in his office. I wandered to a strange wooden door at the back of a long hallway. I know that I shouldn't have opened it, but I couldn't help it. I needed to find Tom's coat. I was worried he was cold. Even though he was dead, I worried he was shivering. <sighs> she stops speaking for a moment. Glass clinks. Around a conference room table, I saw them. Lit by a circle of dim, fluorescent table lamps discussing blueprints projected on the wall. One of them turned to look at me. The others didn't seem to notice. Who was there? The board of directors. Of the Quincy Mining Company? I mean, the real board of directors. Go on. The one who turned to me. He was old. He was hunched. No one could have been that old. He told me I couldn't be there. He would meet me at the lift bridge. So I walked there, to the middle of the bridge, to meet him. I don't remember stopping at home, but I must have, because then I had my scarf with me. It was cold. The canal was frozen. To meet whom? J.T. Blackdoon, Sr. Sound of shuffling paper. I haven't heard of him. I told you, he's one of the directors. The real directors. What do you mean? Her servants, Mr. Lottie. Whose? The Lady of the Hollows. A pounding on the office door made me jump. I clicked pause pretending to be absorbed with wiping down the narrow green cabinet. I looked up at Mr. Magnuson standing in the doorway. I don't know why I knocked, he muttered. Habits. <laughs> Funny things, aren't they? Beneath his thick, arched eyebrows, a pair of eyes judged me. You don't have to finish that tonight. It's not urgent. Oh, that's okay. I'd rather get it all done at once. 
I said without thinking. I should be able to wrap up in the next couple of hours. Mr. Magnuson squinted as he placed his driving glasses on. Then you'll be the last one out. Make sure you lock up. Okay. I waited for the sound of his car rolling down the hill before resuming the tape. My hands were shaking. Once I had settled down, I gazed at a faded newspaper clipping tacked to a cork pencil holder on the desk. The headline read, Mechanical Engineer Dies in Accident at Quincy Smelter. The photograph of Tom Kukula showed a handsome young man with a thick, blonde mustache. I thought of going home, but the voice of Catherine would not leave my head. Never had I heard such mingled calmness and fright. She had to be insane. But if I did not hear the conclusion, I would not be able to sleep. I was haunted by the low tone she had used when she pronounced Lady of the Hollows. I had to hear just how crazy she was in order to comfort myself. So, I clicked the play button. Who? Excuse me? The Lady of the Hollows. Who is she? I I don't know what you're talking about. I've never heard that name. You just said it. You said they were her servants. No, no. I... I was explaining that Tom knew all of the safety protocols. He was the de facto safety educator at the smelter. There's no way he could have fallen over the handrail. And not wearing any gear? That's not what you were saying, Mrs. Kukula. I know what I was saying. What... What are you trying to do? Are you trying to trap me? Aren't you supposed to be my attorney? Burst of static. I have replayed this section of the cassette many times as I believe a third voice begins to speak, very suddenly cut off. The voice is so faint, however, that no matter how much I magnify the volume, I never have made out whether it truly was someone else in the room or nothing more than a radio in a car passing outside Lottie's office. I didn't mean to upset you. Please, go on. I will spare you by saying that the rest of the interview proceeds without oddity. Catherine makes no more mention of sleepwalking, a secret board of directors, or the Lady of the Hollows. Lottie asks her questions about the accident, and Catherine describes how Tom had been warning the company for months about safety concerns in the smelter. She goes into the specifics with an impressive attention to detail. She was every bit as intelligent as her husband, and evidently appreciated the intricacies of his work. If you listen close, you will notice hints of a wavering trepidation in Lottie's voice. He no longer lilts, his sentences no longer seem confident of finding their endings. Looking back, I think it was his growing hesitation, the audible record of his thoughts succumbing to nothingness that drew me in with a rope around my wrist. His faltering led me onward, against my will to the edge of the well where intonations reverberate blind and disjointed, to where our words fail 
By the time I had finished the tape, through its drawn-out and anticlimactic conclusion, the window of the office was pitch black. The wind whistled through a fissure in the frame. Lottie evidently had given up on caulking the thing. The sagging wooden building they used as an office had all sorts of problems like this. Wind was always sneaking in through the cracks. I don't know why they didn't move. How did Lottie tolerate the infernal whistling? I went to the supply room, found a half-used canister of caulk, and sealed it shut. The room became silent. So silent. So silent, in fact, I realized how alone I was. Even if I walked home to my apartment up the hill, I would be no less alone. This place, the Keweenaw with its peeling tar paper roofs and brick streets, was alien to me. The people with their thick northern accents and dated clothing were alien, and I've never been any good at making friends. So, I went back to the cassettes. I could not listen to more of Catherine, and I did not want to hear more about the smelter. So, I grabbed the one labeled Benjamin Faircrown, as nothing I'd seen in the newspaper clippings gave me any indication as to who he was. In the silent room, that quieted chamber of Lottie's mind, the static erupted like a volcano. I welcomed the grating disturbance and the voices that floated like ash trails around me. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Interview of Benjamin Faircrown, March the 19th, 1970, 1 o'clock p.m. A scratching noise and the sound of the tape seemingly rewinding itself. Interview of Benjamin Faircrown, March the 19th, 1970, 1 o'clock p.m. Wind blows in the background. Birds chirp. Mr. Faircrown, I want to ask you about your neighbor, Catherine Kukula. Yeah, of course. Anything to help? How long have you been neighbors? Oh, they moved in now. What was it? A year ago? She and her husband, Tom. Good folk. Did you ever notice any odd behavior? What's odd to you? The wind blows hard. The first half of what Lottie says is muffled beyond hearing. Reality. 
Did she talk to herself? Did she see things that no one else could see? Oh, sure. She talked to herself. Who doesn't now and then? But she had a good head on her shoulders, especially considering all she'd gone through. Like what? The wind stops. Utter silence. Don't you know about her first husband? A branch crashed on the roof. I heard it scrape the shingles as it slid, and I tried not to look out the window, out of an irrational fear that something outside would see me looking and would turn its eyes on me. But it was just a branch. No, she did not. Seven years ago, almost the day of Tom's death, she lost Paul in a boating accident near Isle Royal. How? He ran a charter, but one night he went out by himself. No one knew why. Never came back. He washed up on the rocks. Did she ever talk to you about it? Loud squealing sound. A long pause. When Benjamin resumes, his voice sounds different. He speaks low, as if afraid of someone overhearing. You shouldn't blame her. Blame her. For what? She came from Corellia, a persecuted land. Therefore, persecution is all she's ever known. She was born in Copper Harbor. The Lady of the Hollows was brought by accident from far away. When the fishermen realized what she was, they burned her with marks. Then buried her in the cold. They concealed it. Tried to make everyone forget. Now, she calls her witnesses. This is no crime. Not under the laws of men and women. Not under the laws of any god. The witnesses go willingly. Every seven years, another testament. Her voice must not, cannot, drown. Was it Catherine who told you about the lady? The wind blows hard, and there is a fluttering sound, like garments flying off a clothesline. I asked you if it was Catherine who told you about the lady. What? From here repeats the pattern of Lottie's earlier conversation with Catherine. Benjamin Faircrown denies having said anything about a woman from Corellia or a previous husband of Catherine's. He gives credible and detailed descriptions of the Kukula's unremarkable presence in the neighborhood. Finally, Lottie, exasperated, losing the ability or will to ask further questions, shuts off the tape. You can almost see the leaden weight of his fingertip as it smashes the button in defeat. I replayed both of the tapes, wondering if perhaps their words had been misheard or misunderstood. But they both had said those things they later denied. The tapes do not lie. I thought with sadness of Lottie's last seven years, 
loitering around this office with no direction, his inner compass demagnetized. If he continued to struggle with these delusional people, dealing with tragedy by way of strange but understandable dissociations, I could sympathize. I saw the beginnings of his ghost-like transformation. At least, this is what I thought at the time, before I had listened to the remaining cassettes. Interview of Ed Sepanen, March the 18th, 1970, 9 o'clock a.m. Foreman, Quincy Smelter. Hold on now. Do you have to record all of this? It's for my own investigation. I double-check for consistency. If I were to summarize the statements, I'd omit details and reword things according to my own inclinations. It would become my own narrative. That's no help to anyone. You didn't record her, did you? Who? A chair screeches against the floor. Stop recording. Stop! All right, all right, just settle down. Give me a second. The tape clicks. It clicks again. Static. Another click. More static. Finally, Sapanin resumes. He seems to be chanting in a rhythmic language. Then, abruptly stops. He stood on top of the guardrail and threw himself in, just like I said in the report. He stretched his arms out wide and then into the flames. That reminded me of what my uncle had said about all these accidents over the years. Testament by water. Testament by fire. None find anything but whispers. Wherever it is they go. Who said that? Just old men's stories, Mr. Lottie. Nothing more. The chair scrapes against the floor. Footsteps. You're leaving? There's nothing more to say, Mr. Lottie. I skimmed through the files. Ed Sapanen had worked at the smelter for 18 years. Not long after the interview, he moved to Sault Ste. Marie. His personal history was normal. He had three kids. He liked to fish for northern pike. I remember that I hesitated a long time before inserting the cassette with the second interview of Catherine. In truth, I was becoming terrified of her. There didn't seem to be a reason. Yes, she may have been going mad, but there was nothing overtly incriminating about anything she had said. Perhaps it was the sound of Lottie's voice whenever he mentioned her. Quavered, ever so slightly. I wondered where Lottie was at that moment. I felt a desire to speak with him. Maybe it was because whenever the tapes clicked off, I felt so profoundly alone. I needed to know that someone else had heard these things. I needed to hear a confirming voice that wasn't on a cassette. It was getting late. 
I already had missed my routine bedtime, meaning that no matter when I turned in, tomorrow would be a drag. I had come this far, though. I might as well finish what I had started. I inserted the tape. The sound of furniture being rearranged. A long silence. Why do you need to interview me again? I told you everything the first time. We need you to hear something. A click. The tape of the first interview plays, but the sleepwalking account of Catherine is not there. It is gone. The interview moves straight to the account of the smelter and Tom's safety concerns. A click. The noises of people shifting position, it seems. Mr. Lottie, are you okay? It was there. That's impossible. What are you trying to show me? The things you said. The first things. Have you requested the incident reports yet? Yes, yes, they're on my desk. I haven't had a chance to fully review. I see. I don't know that I get what you're trying to find. I'll show you what Benjamin Faircrown said. Who? Your neighbor. The one next door. There's no one next door. We're on a corner lot. The house next to us has been empty for years. A click. The tape of the interview with Benjamin Faircrown plays uninterrupted. The occasional sound of Lottie or Catherine shifting in their seats. A click. Well? I don't know how to say this. You need to tell me everything. Say it. What about your first husband? I was never married before, Tom. Then why did your neighbors say you were? Catherine clears her throat, sounding very uncomfortable. That was your voice, Mr. Lottie. It was lower, but that was you. What? No, no, I went to his house. We spoke in his yard. There's no one at that house. Whoever he was, he wasn't my neighbor. If you saw someone there, why did you hire me? Oh, because I heard you're the best. My husband is dead. But now I'm worried that, well, this is all taking a toll on you. You don't look well. A long silence interspersed with sparks of static. Thank you, Miss Kakula, for your concern, I mean. But I'm fine. And I think, perhaps, it may just be that the reports won't show... There are other avenues a case has to take sometimes. Thank you for your time. I apologize for... I shouldn't have made you come today. We'll talk on Monday after I've... Recording ends. I listened again to the interview with Benjamin Faircrown. Could Catherine have been right? The voice of Faircrown did sound remarkably similar to that of Lottie. Had his professional reputation as an attorney fooled me? 
but there was a difference in quality between the two voices. Marked distinctions in the mannerisms, the intonations. Lottie would have had to have been an incredible actor, and that seemed improbable, given what I knew. And the things Foreman Sapanen had said were strange. But would they have been so strange if I hadn't heard them after hearing the conversation with Faircrown? But no. I had heard Catherine speak of the Lady of the Hollows, too. I replayed it many times to make sure that it was real. Lottie could not have mimicked that voice. Unless... He had spent so many years alone with these tapes. There were indeed peculiarities in the recordings. Only one tape remained, the one with the scribbled-out name. Something inside me said I should stop. My inner compass, which I ignored, was pointing me away. I could go home to my empty, quiet apartment. I could sleep. I could listen to or destroy the tapes tomorrow. I sat there for a long while, uneasy in Lottie's tall chair, staring at the green filing cabinet. Thinking I heard a branch snap on the ground outside, I stood up as if to leave and chided myself for giving in to the paranoia the cassettes had induced. I wouldn't let my mind get the best of me. I would listen. In defiance of my own fear, I sat down, inserted the final cassette, and clicked the play button. Footsteps. A tapping. Something being dragged. Static. A match is struck. Floorboards creak. Static. A door opening slowly with shrill hinges. The door shuts. Static. The sound of chair legs scratching the floor. When Lottie speaks, he sounds calm but grave. Interview of J.T. Blackdoon Sr. March the 22nd, 1970. 12.30 a.m. Mr. Blackdoon, do you mind me recording this interview? Then, there arises a voice that sounds much like Lottie's, only slower, deeper, and coarse as gravel. It sounds like Lottie imitating a very old man. I do not object. Do you serve the Lady of the Hollows? <laughs> Why don't you ask her yourself? Is Catherine the Lady of the Hollows? Did she kill her husband? You do not need to consult me to answer those questions. What is it you really want to ask? That doesn't make sense. None of this makes sense. Why doesn't anyone remember what they say? What has she done to them? Most everyone tries to forget. But a few. 
They try to remember. They want others to hear. Those upon whom... Static. I only want to know what she's after. No. I don't even need... I... I only need to know how to stop it. What stops all of this? What should I do? Testify. You know I can't do that. Testify. No. No, I'd be ruined. You must choose. She's already there. In the hollows of your mind. What will you say? What will you not say? No, it's not all in my head. I'm not crazy. You are not crazy. Why is she doing this to me? She commands no one. She makes you do nothing. You... Go willingly. Static explodes. The tape seems to rewind and fast forward in alternation. A flood of incomprehensible whispers. No, 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 I won't go. I won't, I won't, I won't go. The sound of his muttering was difficult to take, but not nearly as difficult as the silence that followed. For the recording continued for seven and a half minutes, though neither voice said another word. There may be a soft sobbing, or laughter, or both. The first interview of Catherine replays a recording of a recording in static. Always the static. Then the creaking of floorboards, then the door closing, the footsteps and taps receding. Click. The tape stops. I sat in the chair, afraid to move, wary of shifting the silent air. It was like the moment when, as a child, you prepare to jump onto your bed, avoiding whatever hands may be waiting to grab you from beneath the box spring. You do it fast and you don't look. You tuck yourselves into your covers. You know it's silly, but sometimes you do it even when you're older. I shoved the cassettes into the file cabinet, locked it, grabbed my coat, shut off the lamp, and fled. I strode up the hill to my apartment, not daring to look down any alley nor into any window. I especially did not look in the direction of the smelter, empty and abandoned by the canal. The next morning, it was no surprise to hear the talk in the office. Peter Lottie had leapt from the top of Lift Bridge, how he got up there, no one could explain. The others seemed sad and ashamed as they gathered around the steaming coffee pot. I felt desperate. I felt myself burdened by the knowledge of all things. Knowing the beginning, 
I knew the ending. Or rather, I saw there was no beginning. And therefore, no ending. Fictions. There is no controlling things. That evening, after everyone else had left, I gathered the cassettes and stowed them away in my apartment. I began making plans to move. I never finished my doctorate. Three months later, I fled downstate to the Lower Peninsula. I thought about tossing the cassettes out my window as I drove beside the long, sagging cables of the Mackinac Bridge. I could have thrown them to the waves to sink, to drown, to be quieted forever. But there is no real escape from a voice once you've heard it. Half a page of blank space separates the final paragraphs of the manuscript, which seem to have been typed at a later time. I hear them through the walls. When the sliding doors open, the croaking commandments slip in with the wind drifting through the lobby. There are no young voices here, but from across the canal, from over the crests of Quincy Hill and Mount Ripley, from some undisturbed glen, secreted away in shadow from the grinding machinations of time. She sings a muttering song, and my heart screws tight because there by the canal, out my hotel window, I see her. Finally. After all these years. A hazy outline in the falling snow. A white blur erases her feet, making her wavy body seem to float. Frost coats her bare arms, and yet she does not shiver. A thin, glittering arm reaches out to beckon me with an open hand. I want to see her eyes, but they are lost in shadow. Is that what I will look like? Will my lips turn blue and shadows surround my eyes? I remember what Benjamin Faircrown said. You cannot blame her. Look at the jagged icicles dangling from her young, white hair. I feel she is not only a tormentor, but a victim. She, like myself, is woven into a circle of persecution she did not choose. No beginning. No ending. You can't recite it away. Lottie's stammering hesitation haunts me. For the last seven years I have felt my own voice fading away. I do not want it to disappear forever. It is better to merge than die. I leave this so all may know. When she called, I went willingly. I felt I owed it to her. After all, I'd done no more than Lottie to find out the truth. He left the cassettes. 
I leave these papers. And now you have read these things. Understand the spools will not stop spinning until they have entwined your own voice into the relentless loops. You will follow the path of Lottie and myself, and who knows how many others into the forgiving cold or annihilating heat. Whichever we choose, we, the lesser witnesses, as long as her whispers linger out there in the hills and waters, she will call for you too. Until you go to where we all go. To the earthen chasms where our voices mingle and fade. And so, when at last you hear the whistle through your bedroom window turn to a murmur. What testament will you leave? The Lady of the Hollow. Witness, James H. Kowalczyk. When Detective Yalmerson listened to the five unlabeled cassettes, he found no references to J.T. Blackdoon or the Lady of the Hollows nor did he find a single interview of Catherine Kukula. The unusual details reported by Kowalczyk simply did not exist. The only disturbing element was the last cassette, in which Lottie did in fact hold a conversation with himself. He debated the details uncovered by his investigation from two opposing points of view trying to determine whether or not Miss Kukula had been responsible for her husband's death. Far from reflecting an abrupt slide into insanity, the one-person dialogue seemed like the rational process of an intelligent man, trying to reconcile contradictory facts, struggling to determine his ethical duty in the event his client had committed murder due to an underlying mental illness. Having listened to Lottie's unsettling observations about Catherine, Detective Yalmerson reopened the case of Tom Kukula's death at the Quincy Smelter 14 years prior, but found himself at an immediate dead end. The smelter had ceased operations over 10 years ago. All reports of the incident were lost. Moreover, no evidence showed that Tom Kukula ever had been married. There was no Catherine Kukula, neither according to private interviews nor to public records. Yalmerson determined the case was nothing but an elaborate hoax. Then, closed the file... When I tracked down Yolmerson, his former colleagues either could not or would not tell me where he went. He retired on short notice in 1991. In his final years, he had shown signs of rapid mental deterioration, speaking
speaking in mumbled half-sentences. I base my report on the few comments he made to colleagues, as well as documents I received pursuant to a Freedom of Information Act request. Perhaps I should note one last thing that was shared with me, under condition of anonymity. She was a junior detective at the time of Yolmerson's retirement. In the final months before his departure, whenever the snow was falling, she would find Yolmerson alone in his office, his chair turned away from his desk, staring with glassy eyes at the frozen canal. When the junior detective asked what he was looking at, Yolmerson replied, A highway of obsidian. A man without a coat walking down it, getting buried, getting forgiven, dissolving. She asked what he was talking about, if he was still working the Kowalczyk case, in response to which he chuckled and replied, There's nothing to solve. This is no crime. Not under the laws of men and women. Not under the laws of any god. She asked him to say more, but he acted as if he hadn't heard. Author's Note After some digging, I found there was a Paul Johnson who died in 1963, but his body was not found among the rocks of Isle Royal, nor anywhere. In his boat, docked at Copper Harbor, the police found what they described as an incoherent suicide letter. There was no record of him marrying. Authors know. A people, region, and culture split by the modern border of Finland and Russia. Karelia is of special significance to Finnish history and mythology. The national instrument, the Kantela, was created there. Rune singers were prominent. The political past is torn and bitter. Kowalczyk's note. I have never found any evidence that a man named Benjamin Faircrown lived in the Keweenaw. Author's note. I too have found no records of Benjamin Faircrown. I did find a Ben Fulcrow who lived near Lac Labelle from the 1930s and 50s. He was a fisherman. Sometime after returning from war in 1945, he chose to live in self-imposed exile, growing vegetables, refusing to interact with any of his neighbors. People guessed that he had seen something traumatic, probably during his time overseas. He had some kind of falling out with the other fishermen over something that happened on the frozen lake one winter in the late forties. Kowalczyk's note. I consulted Professor Tapio of Suomi College. She said it was the Karelian dialect and that Ed Sapanin was chanting a Kitaja, a kind of rune song. Professor Tapio did not recognize many of the words. This rune song seemed very archaic in her opinion, dating back perhaps as far as the mid-17th century. 
I lost her handwritten translation years ago when I moved downstate. What stood out to me then, and what I recall now, is that she believed the function of this rune song was protective. It explained origins of valleys. By reciting it, one called upon the valley's spirit to contain something, and Professor Tapio did not recognize the word, that had been secured between the hills. Author's Note Kowalczyk incorrectly refers to what Sapan enchanted as a tiataja, when the correct term would be a sinti. A sinti is a metric incantatory poem that explains the origin of a phenomenon or entity. Finnish shamans, or more literally, knowers, were referred to as tiatajat. A fundamental wisdom of the tiatajat is that in order to control something, whether it be a flood, a storm, a disease, a famine, an animal, or an emotion, one must not only know, but recite its origins. Author's Note Apparently, Lottie detailed a number of incriminating pieces of evidence that Kowalczyk either did not notice or did not care to include in his excerpts. For example... Lottie said that two witnesses had observed Tom and Catherine eating dinner at Andriani's in downtown Hancock, not less than an hour before his death. Foreman Sapanin said Tom had complained about, and I quote, his woman, wanting him to run the tests at the smelter that late in the evening, when he, referring to Tom, thought it could wait until morning. Catherine knew details of the moments leading up to his death that only someone within the smelter could have known. Her fingerprints may have been found on a handrail. Author's Note I identified a Katerina, or Catherine, Leosko, who had been born in Copper Harbor at approximately the right time to be the same age as Catherine but locals assured me she had married and relocated to Green Bay in the 1960s. Interestingly, there was an earlier Katerina Leasco, apparently unrelated, who came as a refugee from Soviet-controlled Eastern Karelia after the Continuation War. She threw herself under the ice of Luck Labelle in 1949, at the age of 21. This case momentarily distracted me from my purpose, for the details surrounding her death were fascinating. She had committed what can only be called a ritualistic suicide, imitating the features of semi-preserved murder victims discovered in European bogs, such as the Toland Man and the Yida Girl. She had shaved part of her head and tied ropes around her limbs. In addition, it appeared she had branded her wrists with the distorted version of the Hanun Veokana, the looping Finnish symbol of luck and protection. According to the original account, a group of ice fishermen tried in vain to restrain her before she cast herself into a fishing hole. There was not enough material here to distract me for long. However... Despite this wild account, none of the locals seemed able to remember the earlier Katerina 
having existed at all. You've been listening to The Gathering of Drowned Voices by Benjamin Curl. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to me. If you'd like to hear more lengthy tales, be sure to take a look at my audiobooks, available now on audible.com. If you'd like to hear a premium, ad-free edition of tonight's and all our other episodes, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, including past episodes of this program, all of our other shows, and hundreds of standalone releases, all of them ad-free and available to download or stream. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You'll find me personally on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well. Until next week, listener, when we meet up once again atop the Horror Hill for yet another Dance with Darkness, I bid you good night, sleep tight, listener, and whatever you do, if you hear scratching at your door, don't open it. The darkness may have found you, but it's up to you to let it in. You've been listening to Horror Hill, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, as well as a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Jason Hill unless otherwise noted. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Sound design, original music, and final mixing and mastering provided by Felipe Ojeda under the guidance of executive producer and director Craig Groshek. The program's logo was created by Craig Groshek, and this week's artwork provided by Omega Black, unless otherwise noted. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at horrorhill at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of the show. If you enjoyed what you've heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and Horror Hill on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, 
Do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon to get more spooky tales from me and the crew, and another episode of this program each and every week. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing, and leave a kind word or request. If you can never get enough spooky stories and can't wait until next week for more, and haven't already, be sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on YouTube for hundreds of free audio horror stories, including more performances from yours truly, and consider supporting us by becoming a patron at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next week with more frightening fiction to haunt your dreams. Until next time, I'm Jason Hill, and you've been listening to the Horror Hill Podcast. Good evening, and sweet dreams. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.